Thank you for listening to the Abundant Life Sermon Podcast. Abundant Life is based out of Lee Summit, Missouri and has campuses throughout the Kansas City metro area and online. We want to see your life changed by Jesus. For more information about Abundant Life or for locations and service times, visit livingproof.co. Thanks for listening. Good morning, church. So good to see you once again. Wherever you're gathering with us from, we're glad you've gathered right here with us for the book of Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 1 this morning. Is it not so exciting to see so many baptisms, so many life change, transformation, new creations? That's what we live for, to see lives changed by Christ. Church, before we get going, let me make a little infomercial. I don't do this very often, but this is important, so let me share this. So our food pantry is at an all-time high of demand, all-time low of supply. So normally we get four to 800 pounds of meat donated by area grocery stores. They don't have the inventory to donate, which means our inventory is super low too. So uh, Chris and I are actually buying a whole cow. We are, and we're going to... Uh, have it processed and just donate it. And uh, if you could do something this week, even like one bag of chicken, one thing of hamburger, whatever it is, anything will help. And if you can, just buy something and bring it up. And Monday, all day, Tuesdays from 9 to noon or all day Wednesday, they can receive that from you. Living proof of a loving God to a watching world. That's what that food pantry is about. Thank you all for your generosity. You're amazing. Thank you for letting God use you so so just sacrificially. So he's remembered for saying something very significant. He said many things, but one of the things he's most remembered for is this right here. He alone who owns the youth gains the future. Now that could have been said in 605 BC by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar who besieged Jerusalem, taking Daniel and 70 other Hebrew children back to Babylon to re-indoctrinate them. He did so because whoever owns the youth gains the future, but it was actually said by another would-be world dictator, this man right here, Adolf Hitler in the 1930s. Coming to power in 1933, he made this statement, whoever owns the youth gains the future. You see, it was more than simply a war for more land and wealth. Like Nebuchadnezzar, it was a war of worldviews. He wanted to radically change the scope of culture. He wanted to radically change the scope of values. So he began enrolling German children in what was called the Nazi youth movement. By 1935, 60% of youth throughout Germany were enrolled in the Nazi youth. By 1939, it was over 90% of Nazi youth in terms of all the children throughout Germany was enrolled in this program. It was to indoctrinate them in the worldview of Nazi fascism. It would begin as early as six years of age, and they began learning then Mein Kampf. It was the worldview of Adolf Hitler. They began learning racism and anti-Semitism. They began learning at a young age that Jews were subhuman, that they were what they called parasites, and that the Aryan race was the superior race. And that is how a once Christian civilization becomes completely so deeply indoctrinated in anti-Semitism that by the war's end, some of these very children you're looking at would be hurting human beings into gas chambers like cattle. 
How did this happen? He that owns the youth gains the future. And for that reason, Nebuchadnezzar has come in 605 B.C., he besieges Jerusalem. He specifically takes some 70 children with him, Daniel being among them. For this very same reason, the indoctrination of these Hebrew children. Now, I've shared recently, if you want to see what's going on presently, just know something about the past. History does repeat itself, and you can't really understand where we're going if you don't understand where we've been. Somebody says, well, why are we studying the book of Daniel, this 2,500-year-old document? What does it have to do with my life today? And the answer is just about everything. Daniel chapter 1. And verse three puts it this way. Then the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. I told you last week, the Chaldeans are the same thing as Babylonians. By the time of Nebuchadnezzar, those terms were used simultaneously. They were an ethnic group in the Mesopotamian Fertile Crescent. Remember, Babylon is the city of Babel. It grew up on the Euphrates River. Today, you could go, theoretically, to the ruins of this ancient city of Babylon. It sits about 50 miles south of the modern-day city of Baghdad in the modern-day nation of Iraq. That was the kingdom of Babylon. In 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem. And it's not his compassion or his concern for these children that he keeps them alive and doesn't kill them. He knows that this is more than a war for land and wealth. This is a war of worldviews. It is a war of religion. It is a war of culture. He wants to destroy the Hebrew religion and the Hebrew culture with that Hebrew set of values and worldview. He wants to make these Hebrew children Babylonian. He's going to teach them the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Now, not only was it an ethnic group, it was a religious group. Remember, Babylon goes back to the city of Babel. It means gate of God. And we saw in week one, it began in Genesis chapter 10 with a man known as Nimrod. Nimrod is a name that means Lord of Rebellion. And he builds this city in Genesis 11, and he builds a tower, he said, that would reach into heaven. And you remember what it says in Genesis 11? They said, come let us build a city and tower that will reach into heaven and let us build a name for ourselves. They were in direct opposition to God's kingdom. Babel, it means gate of God. They were trying to build a gate to God apart from God. What they were saying is we are our only God. Now listen very carefully. We live in a Babylonian society where the spirit of Babylon is fully alive today in the 21st century. The city died many years ago. It lies in ruins today. But I told you over and over again, I want you to remember this as we study the book of Daniel. Daniel is writing from this ancient city of Babylon as a Hebrew captive of Nebuchadnezzar. And Babylon in the Bible is seen over 280 times from Old Testament to New Testament. Often it refers to this ancient city literally, but more times than not, when you see the word Babylon or a reference therein in Scripture, it is not a reference to this historical city historically, but rather a metaphor of rebellion. 
rebellion. It's used as a metaphor for a wicked world system that is still in opposition to God's kingdom. And in the 21st century, no different than 605 BC, the Lord of rebellion, that Lord of rebellion that was leading that rebel rebel battalion at the Tower of Babel, he is still pulling the strings behind the scenes in the 21st century. We live in a civilization in rebellion against God. We live at a time in this once Christian land of Judeo-Christian civilization that's increasingly in opposition to all that is godly and all that is holy. You see, we live in a Babylonian society and the spirit of Babylon is battling even now for the hearts and minds of America's youth. This message in the next couple of weeks is for every mama, every daddy, every grandma, every grandpa that has little ones at home. You need to understand that wherever children are involved, the battle lines are drawn. It always has been. This is why Nebuchadnezzar brought Daniel and his friends back to Babylon to re-indoctrinate them in the ways and worldview of the Babylonians. This is why Adolf Hitler said, he who owns the youth gains the future, and he launched what was called the Nazi youth movement, because if you wanna change a civilization, you have to reach the youngest generation, and that is why even now the spirit of Babylon is warring for the hearts and minds of our children. It's a plan of indoctrination. This was the reason for Nebuchadnezzar bringing these children back to Babylon for the indoctrination of these Hebrew children. This was their intention in the beliefs and worldview and values of the Babylonians. Understand what was happening. If you look in chapter one, and we'll eventually get all the way through it. I mean, we're making warp speed through the book of Daniel, aren't we? I mean, we are flying. Now listen, there's parts I don't want to rush through because this is just so relevant. It's just so important. What we're going to see in chapter 1 is Nebuchadnezzar gives Daniel and these other Hebrews a full-ride scholarship to the University of Babylon, a three-year training academy where they're going to learn the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, not just this ethnic group historically, but the religious group. The Chaldeans practiced black magic. They were worshiping the stars. They were astrologers, not simply astronomers, and they were practicing witchcraft. They were practicing the occult. And Daniel is going to be immersed in that society. He's going to be immersed in the city. Nebuchadnezzar's desire was to indoctrinate them, re-educate them, reprogram them in the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And I want you to understand it's already happening in some similar way in our society where we're watching Christianity evolving into something in some cases that's more pagan than Christian. It's already happening where in some cases the American church is looking more like Babel than it does the Bible. See, every single one of our minds have been indoctrinated by this Babylonian worldview in this Babylonian society. Let me give you an example, just just for example. Just ask yourself, most of us here, not all of us, but most of us probably profess to be a Christian. If you don't profess to be a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. You're welcome among us, and we're just glad that maybe you're just kind of putting your toe in the water trying to figure out this Jesus thing at all. But most of us here probably identify as a Christian. But some of us, though we identify as a Christian, we think more like a Babylonian. 
All right, here's an example. Christianity teaches that there is one God, eternal existing, in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the only way to God is through the shed blood of the Son of God that Jesus died for our sin and he rose again. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is not just a way, he is the only way. That's what Christianity believes because this is what Jesus said and it's what Jesus did. But we live at a time where even professing Christians will say something like, well, Jesus is my way, but he's not the only way. I mean, all roads lead to heaven. All religions lead to God. Do you understand that's not Christianity? That's a Babylonian mentality that we have brought into the church to water down Christian theology? See, the church is becoming more pagan than Christian, and you see it everywhere. The problem's not out there. The problem is this is infiltrated in here. It's infiltrated our thinking. Jesus is the only way. But see, Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, worshiped many gods. They were pluralistic theologically. And we live in a society that was once Judeo-Christian by definition, that's becoming increasingly Babylonian. We're no longer simply a nation under God. We become a nation now of many gods. Just pick a god. Any god will do. They're all the same. All right, this is Babylonian. Here's another example. One of the things that were unique in the ancient world of Jews and Christians because they worship the true and living God of heaven, God says sex is sacred. It's sacred, it means something, it symbolizes something. Therefore, I I want you to protect sex and it's something just for marriage. So consequently, Christians historically, this is what separated them from the pagans, they had a radically different sexual ethic. Christians historically practiced celibacy before marriage and then monogamy in marriage, right? But now we live at a time where even professing Christians who say, I'm following Jesus, or sleeping with everyone and anyone. A hookup culture. Man, I'm not naive. I know what's going on out there. Even though we profess to be Christian, we live more like morally a Babylonian. See, Babylonian worldview says, oh no, I mean, pagans practice, hey, they worshiped Ishtar. Daniel would have gone through the Ishtar gate. You understand who Ishtar was? Ishtar was a Babylonian god. She was the goddess of sexuality, sensuality, the goddess of fertility. We've made Jesus into Ishtar. We all of a sudden have become a society of promiscuity instead of fidelity. That's not Christianity, that's Babylonian. Just take the test. Nobody, don't, don't raise your hand. Just leave your hands in your lap. It's just between you and Jesus, okay? I want you to see how it's even infiltrated our thinking. Do you know Jesus said this in Matthew 19 and verse 4 when asked about marriage specifically? He defined marriage not based on culture, but rather creation. He said, have you not heard that in the beginning God created male and female? See, Christian marriage, in the eyes of God, government can define it however they want, but it's more than simply a secular institution. To God, it's a sacred institution, and God defines marriage as a man and a woman. He always will. It hasn't changed. But we live in a Babylonian society that says, oh, no, we can define it however we want. And there are Christians who are very much for in favor of redefining marriage in whatever capacity. Do you understand? That's Babylonian, not Christian. I want you to see how it has indoctrinated even the church so the church of Western civilization increasingly looks more like Babel than does the Bible. 
and it's in direct opposition to God's kingdom. It's, it's anti-godly, it's anti-holy, it's, it's, it's infiltrating this Babylonian society into what is Christianity, church. This is why when you get to the end of the Bible, Revelation 17 and verse five, God describes the end times church like this. And I gotta pray, it's graphic. You may wanna hold your ears, all right? But this is God's description of the end times church. Revelation 17 and verse five, mystery Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. The end times church is a harlot church. Why? Because she has prostituted the truth of Christianity with the lies of the enemy. And it's happening right in front of our eyes. And this is why we have to be aware that we all are being indoctrinated in a Babylonian society in a Babylonian worldview where even those of us that profess Christ sometimes think like a Babylonian and less like a Christian. Now here's the progression of indoctrination. This is what Daniel's going to go through in chapter 1. This is what all of our kids will go through at some time in their life. The first thing is Daniel has an authority crisis. That leads to an identity crisis, which leads to a morality crisis. Now, now you know where we're going for the next three weeks. I'm going to talk today about the authority crisis. Because of the authority crisis, he has an identity crisis. Because of the identity crisis, there's a morality crisis. Let me just explain what this looks like. So Nebuchadnezzar takes Daniel captive. Nebuchadnezzar now says, you belong to me. I'm now your authority. I've separated you from your parents. I've separated you from your family. I've separated you from your country. I've separated you from your theology. Now you're my captive and you belong to me. I'm your authority. You're going to believe what I tell you to believe. You're going to do what I tell you to do. That leads to an identity crisis. See, whose you are defines who you are. See, we're having an identity crisis in American society where my identity can evolve and change daily because I've forgotten who I belong to. See, your authority is whose you are, your identity then is who you are, and then your morality is what you do, and you do what you do because you is what you is. And I is what I is because Jesus is what I is. I am what I am, and that's why I do what I do, and I do what I do because I am what I am, and that's all that I am. I am am what I am because it's all that I am. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. All the Gen Z's right now are going, man, you guys are weird. These old folks are strange. All right, some of you don't get it, but I know you, you got it. You were thinking the same thing I was, see. All right, so. Here's the point. I do what I do because I am what I am. And I am what God says I am. See, God is my authority. Daniel had an identity crisis after he had an authority crisis. Check this out. Daniel's name means God is my judge. But we're going to see next week how Nebuchadnezzar changes his name. No, God is no longer your judge. I'm changing your name to Belteshazzar, Bell's prince. Do you see the name change, the identity change? First, there's an authority crisis. God is not your authority. I'm giving you a new identity. You're Bell's Prince. Now you're going to serve Bell, my God, instead of your God. 
And then there's the morality crisis. It says in verse eight, he purposed in his heart that he would not eat the king's delicacies or drink the king's wine. You see, for a godly Hebrew, there were certain things on the list uh, he could not eat, certain things on the list that he could not drink. God says, don't do that. If I do that, that's called sin. Now, I want you to understand, because Daniel never forgot whose he was. He never forgot who he was. Therefore, he did not defile himself, it says, with the king's delicacies, his immorality. Now you know where we're going. But here's the reality. If you don't have an authority, you will eventually lose your sense of identity, and it will become moral anarchy, and that's where we're now living in modern American society. So let me talk about authority, because we live in a society in rebellion against authority. We live in our society that is in rebellion against God's kingdom, complete opposition, and it looks something like this. It begins with secularism. Now, if you were the devil and you wanted to destroy a Judeo-Christian civilization, how would you do that? Think with me for just a moment. You would not insert in the 20th century America Nazi fascism, though Nazi fascism was certainly an example of this wicked world system in opposition to God's kingdom. But we fought a war against it. You're going to do that. You're, you're not going to insert 20th century communism. I mean, for 50 years, we had missiles pointed at Russia, and Russia had missiles pointed at us. That's not the threat in a Judeo-Christian civilization. In a Judeo-Christian civilization, you're not going to bring the destruction of that civilization through false religion, like Buddhism, Hinduism. Not in America. What you're going to do is insert something else called secularism. I told you Babylon reemerges from generation to generation. It goes underground and then resurfaces based on culture to culture. It changes names, but it's all still the same. It's in opposition to God's kingdom. What Satan did in the 20th century America, a once godly nation, is secularize it. What is secularism? It is the worldview that says there either is no God or God doesn't matter. God is irrelevant. God isn't there, God doesn't care. So historically, in a Judeo-Christian society like we once were, the average American sees God as very prominent in their life, like their life rotates around God, and God doesn't rotate around them. And we see God central to what we do and central to who I am. And what happened in the 20th century was not false religion, or some other wicked world system like fascism or communism. No, it was secularism. What is secularism? From one generation to the next, we become less Christian and more pagan. I told you last week, the social science, the stats, tells us what happened in the last half of the 20th century. From the World War II generation, that was about 65% in a Christian worldview, to the next generation, their children, the boomer generation, 32% Christian worldview, and then their children, the next generation, my generation, Generation X, with a 16% worldview, and then my children's generation, the millennial generation, with a 4% Christian worldview. That's called the secularization of a once Christian nation. So from secularism, where the view is, there is no God, or if there is a God, he doesn't matter to my life, it doesn't stay with simply secularism. The next step is secular humanism. The 1930s, the first draft of the Humanist Manifesto was released. It defines secular humanism as a religion. It's the religion of atheism, the religion of secularism. 
See, human beings are made to worship. We're going to worship something. Even atheists worship something. Secular humanism is self-deification. It's the deification of man. There is no God, so that makes me God. I'm the only God there is. Secular humanism becomes self-worship, self-idolatry. I'm going to sit on my own throne. So here's the progression from secularism to secular humanism, which is self-deification. Now, I'm my own God. We're right back in Genesis chapter 3 with Eve at the tree. You remember how the serpent deceived Eve and lured her to eat of that tree? Eat of this tree, Eve. You'll be like God's. See, there's something in fallen men and women that all want to be God. And you have that in secular humanism. I'm God, and that means I sit on my own throne. Self-deification leads then to self-gratification instead of living for God's glorification. From self-secularism uh, to secular humanism, now you have two things that happens. On a societal level, you have Marxism. What is Marxism? It's the belief there is no God, so government becomes God. Where historically in Judeo-Christian societies, we are free to serve God. Now there is no God, so government becomes God. And all of a sudden, instead of God controlling our lives, government controls our lives. Government becomes the arbitrator now in society. And that is why, by the way, not so coincidentally, when you look in Revelation chapter 13, there is a reason why Marxism is trending even in Western civilization. Because when you get back to the end of the Bible, in Revelation 13, it prophesies that one day there will be a universal world system of Marxism. So on a societal level, it leads to Marxism. On a personal level, secular humanism leads to hedonism. What is hedonism? Hedonism is the sole pursuit of pleasure. Hedonism is the sole pursuit of self-gratification. Secular humanism is self-deification. If I start living like I'm a God, like I'm the only one that matters, and I sit on my own throne, then my chief end is to do whatever it takes to make me happy. And if it's happy, then I begin to form my sense of morality based on what makes me happy. And since I'm now a God, I start demanding everybody else fall in line behind me. And that's why today you can't disagree with anyone without being accused of being a hater, you're a bigot, you hate me. You're, a, you know, you're gonna offend somebody if you just disagree with them, why? You can disagree with me and I promise I'm not gonna be offended. I'm serious. You can disagree with my belief in a deity. If you're an atheist, I'm not going to be offended because you disagree. You know why? Because I'm not God. It's not between you and me. As a matter of fact, we could probably disagree. If we got to know each other, we could end up being friends. But we live in a time now of self-idolatry. And if everyone walks around like they're God, they have a right to demand everybody else revolve around them. And all of a sudden, oh, you hate me. You're a bigot. You're an enemy. See, that's the nature of a society that's now in self-idolatry. A secular society gives way to a society of self-idolatry, which leads to moral anarchy. And everyone does what is right in their own eyes. That's a Babylonian society. And it all begins with a lack of an understanding there's a higher authority. Do you understand as mortals... It is destined that we will live under a spiritual authority. 
like this is deep. What I'm going to say, you need to listen carefully. All right, this is so deep. Listen carefully. God is God and we are not. It's deep. I'm going to have to think about that a few minutes. Yeah, this is what it is. We're having an authority crisis in society, which is why we live in a society going crazy. Because we've forgotten that God is God and we are not. He made us. We didn't make him. This is the authority crisis. Who you belong to, who you answer to, is the one that gets to define you. See, that authority crisis leads to an identity crisis. So the first thing we have to establish is God alone is our high authority. We've forgotten this in a Babylonian society. See, Nebuchadnezzar said, Daniel, you now belong to me. I'm your authority. We live in a society that says God is not the authority, a secularized society. God isn't there. God's non-existent. God doesn't care. You're now your own authority. When you become your own authority, we all become our own little gods. We start walking in self-idolatry. That leads then to moral anarchy. And so we need to understand what society wants to do to our children. The Babylonian spirit is alive. It wants to indoctrinate them in the spirit of Babylon, the worldview of Babylon. On. And so it begins by teaching our children that God is God and they are not. And some of us need to be reminded of this, that God made us, we didn't make him. That he's our authority. But society is teaching our children there is no higher authority than self. See, that's secularism. And so systematically, our children, one generation to the next, is being indoctrinated in this worldview that all that matters is me. Self-idolatry, the idolatry of self. And so consequently, what do we need to teach our children? Because they're not going to learn it outside. They're not going to learn it from their friends. They're probably not going to learn it from the public school classroom. They're not going to learn it anywhere else if we don't teach them from the earliest days. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar wanted the children because he that owns the youth gains the future. There is a battle for the hearts and minds of our kids. And the first thing we need to teach them is that as creator of his creation, God has authority over us. He doesn't conform to us. We conform to him. Yeah, this is what we, we're, we've done, even in the church, even within Christianity, and I use that term loosely. Because not every church that puts a sign on the building and says church is a church. Not every Christian who proclaims to be a Christian, by definition, is a Christian. There are many who profess Christ. They don't possess Christ because the Jesus they follow looks more like Babylon than it does the Bible. And the first thing we need to remember is that as the creator over his creatures, God doesn't conform to us. We conform to him. The arrogance of modern man. Think about this for a moment. Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. We were created in the image and likeness of God, but now we have created God in the image and likeness of us. The arrogance. And we think we're in charge of God when God's in charge of us. And you see it everywhere now in society. It sometimes happens so subtly. It's becoming less subtle and more in your face all 
the time. I give you this example. This is a picture of a protest on Azusa Pacific University. It's in Southern California. Azusa Pacific, historically, is distinctly Christian as a university, evangelical by definition, distinctly Christian. What you're looking at here is in the fall of 2018, a student-led protest. And the students were protesting the ban on campus of same-sex romantic relationships. Now, as a distinctly Christian university, naturally there was a biblical view of sex, marriage, and sexuality. What you're looking at here, though, is a student-led protest of that ban. They have since reversed their ban. They've gone the way of many Christian institutions and become more Babylonian than biblical. That's what's happening. It's an attack on Christianity specifically. And I want you to read the prayer of a young man leading this protest. One of the student protesters prayed this day. And here was the prayer that he prayed, all right? This isn't something sinful, God. This is something beautiful. I pray that we continue to live out the mission of being difference makers, God. That this world be a place of equality, God. I want you to picture this for just a moment. A 20-year-old sophomore in college lecturing the God of the cosmos, the creator of the cosmos. God, this isn't sinful. This is something beautiful. I mean, who does he think he is? Who made who? And it shows the grace and love and patience of our God. Because honestly, if I'm God in that moment, I'm looking back down at him. He's shaking his hand in my face, and I'm going, diarrhea. (laughs) I mean, our God is so full of grace. I don't think I'd be as patient as he is. You know, a 20-year-old sophomore in college lecturing the creator of the cosmos on what is right and wrong, what is beautiful versus what is sinful. Now listen, this young man didn't get here by himself. I'm sure he's very sincere in his belief system. He probably identifies as a Christian. He's going to a Christian university. But see, he has been so indoctrinated in the God of Babylon that he does not understand the God of the Bible. And it's not his fault. He's been indoctrinated. And you see this even in Christian churches and Christian families and Christian institutions like Azusa Pacific University. See, for his God, God has only two commands for this false Jesus, this fake Jesus, this Babylonian Jesus. There's only two commands in all the Bible Be nice and be happy, that's it. Just be nice and be happy. Does everybody get along? Be nice and be happy, that's it. That's the two commands in this this Jesus and in this young man's worldview. You also see a couple of other things. He has an understanding that my mission is to bring equality. Now understand something, there's a distortion of, of equality. Equality is a core value of Christianity. It's Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus, meaning we're all equal before God. We're all equal at the cross. We all have equal value to him. We all have equal worth 
to him. But listen carefully, the fact that all human beings, men and women, are equal before God, it does not believe that all views are equal before God, or all lifestyles are equal before God, or all actions are equal before God. It's God who gave us right and wrong. See, there's this distortion of equality now, though. Where because God is a God of equality and we're all equal before God, all views are equally valid too. That's not what Jesus was teaching. See, with this Babylonian Jesus that doesn't look anything like the Bible, he's only got two commands, be nice and be happy, and he apparently only said one thing in all the Gospels, Matthew 7 and verse 1, judge not lest you be judged. That's it. That's all Jesus ever said. I'm, I'm being sarcastic now. You know that, right? If that wasn't obvious. No, wait a minute. So judge not lest you be judged. What was Jesus really teaching? Matthew 7, verse 1, judge not lest you be judged. The same Jesus that said judge not lest you be judged is the very same Jesus who in John 7, verse 24 said, judge not according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. See, what was Jesus teaching? He wasn't saying don't make any moral judgments of right and wrong. He was saying learn to judge without being judgmental. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't be condemning of other people. Don't point out the speck in their eye when you got a log hanging out of your eye. We all got our issues. Don't act like you're better than anybody else. See, he wasn't teaching, don't make any moral judgments of right and wrong. He was simply do it in a way that you're not being judgmental. But we all make moral judgments every single day. You see, when Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged, and then he said, judge according to a righteous standard, he wasn't making contradictory statements. He was making completing statements. See, these statements, these concepts, don't judge, and then he says, do judge, He's not making contradictory statements. He's making complementary statements. He's teaching us how to judge. Don't judge another motivation or the heart of another, but do judge actions. See, you can't do that, though, if God is not your higher authority. If God is not the higher authority, then you can't judge with a righteous standard. You're going to judge based on personal opinion. And here's the reality. You are free to have your own opinion, but you're not free to have your own truth. Those are two different things. You're free to have your own opinion, but nobody's free to have their own truth because all truth is God's truth. You get to define what is true when you're God. That's something you get to do. We're not God. God is God and we're not, which means truth can't be defined by us, it must be discovered by us. See, this young man has been indoctrinated into a Jesus that doesn't exist at all, a Jesus that looks more like him when God made him to become like God. Now, here's what happens, church, when you remove a higher authority. We have an authority crisis in America, in American society, where now we're on authority, I have no higher authority, self-idolatry, all decide what's right and wrong, good and evil, moral from sinful. What happens is when you no longer have a higher authority, it leads to moral anarchy. And when you redefine the lines for one set of people, you've got to redefine the lines for every other set of people. So that now, do you understand, now that same-sex relationships have been normalized and legitimized in the eyes of most Americans, do you know that now there are people of reputation that are credible, tenured, 
that are now making the same argument for pedophilia. That that's just another orientation too. And some people are born that way. This is how they're made. It's just an orientation. Uh, and I could give you example after example. It's not a one-off. Stephen Kirshner is a professor at State University in New York. He recently said these words. Imagine that an adult male wants to have sex with a 12-year-old girl. Imagine that she's a willing participant. A very standard, very widely held view is that there's something deeply wrong about this. And it's wrong independent of being criminalized. It's not obvious to me that it's in fact wrong. I think this is a mistake, and I think exploring why it's a mistake will tell us not only things about adult child sex and statutory rape, but also about fundamental principles of morality. See, when you remove a higher authority, there's no limits to human depravity. Who's now to say what's right and wrong? So suddenly, being attracted sexually to a child is just another orientation. It's an attempt to legitimize it and normalize it. And actually, when challenged on what he said, the man doubled down on it. When asked, well, what would be the, like the youngest minimum age that a child could give consent, he actually went down to one year of age. Now, this is not a one-off. This is happening over and over again. A professor at Old Dominion University in Virginia wrote a book normalizing, arguing to legitimize pedophilia. He uses in this book, arguing it's just another orientation, instead of using the term pedophile, he uses the term MAP. It stands for minor attracted person. In an interview, when asked why, he uses that term instead of pedophile. He said these words, I use the term minor attracted person or MAP in the title and throughout the book for multiple reasons. First of all, because I think it's important to use terminology for groups that members of that group want others to use for them. And MAP advocacy groups like Before You Act have, an advocate, have advocated for use of the term MAP. They've advocated for it primarily because it's less stigmatizing than other terms like pedophile. That's, let's remove the stigma of pedophile. I mean, that just sounds so ugly and nasty. Going to normalize it, legitimize it. I have another term for this besides pedophile. It's called being a pervert. That's what it's called. And here's the point, here's what we're seeing. Where there's no higher authority, complete moral anarchy, here's the argument, here's the logic. It's not only unbiblical, it is illogical. If it feels natural, it must be moral. This is the argument now. I can sleep who I want to sleep with, love as long as I love them, that's the only condition. Well, what if I love 25 women instead of one? See, some say what comes natural to me is same-sex attraction. Somebody else says what comes natural to me is minor attracted person. That's my orientation. Let me tell you, church, about your pastor feel, all right? My orientation, what comes natural to me, by the time I was 10, I realized I like girls. In fact, by the time I was 10, I realized I like all girls. I've never met one I didn't like. By the time I was 10, I liked them all. But since October the 5th, 1991, I have been a one-woman man. 
Even though my orientation, what would come natural, is to pursue every beautiful woman I see. That would come natural to me, but I don't. I'll tell you why. Because I know who I am based on whose I am. I belong to God as a man of God and a blood-bought son of the living God. I have a moral conscience given to me by a moral creator, which makes me morally accountable. And while I might naturally want to pursue another woman, I'm not married to, I don't because Jesus says I can't. That is not oppressive at all. That's what's kept me free from captivity. I'm still married after 30 years happily. See, the lie of the enemy is Christianity is oppressive. God is oppressive. No, God's not trying to take something from you. He's trying to give something better to you. When you remove a higher authority, you start living in moral anarchy. It always leads to captivity. And we live in a society in opposition to all of God's kingdom, a society that hates what is holy and hates what is godly because we think we're gonna be enlightened and throw off those old oppressive moral values of the Bible and it's antiquated and it's outdated, I want you to see statistically the reality is that we're not become a society that's free, we're a society going deeper and deeper into captivity. The social science is in. Statistically, we are the most depressed generation in the history of our nation. Statistically, we're the most addicted generation in the history of our nation. Statistically, we are the loneliest generation in the history of our nation. Statistically, soaring STDs among America's teens. Statistically, soaring suicides among the teens and 20-somethings. Do you understand that we have sowed our seed to the wind and we are reaping a whirlwind? The carnage is everywhere. And this isn't some preacher propaganda thumping his Bible. This is the social science. The statistics tell us what's going on in our society. And it is because we have rebelled against a higher authority. We forgot that God is God and God is not. No higher authority leads to complete moral anarchy, which leads to personal societal captivity. What happened in 605 BC? God warned them all along, generation after generation. God warned Daniel's people, the Hebrews. He kept telling them through the prophets, warning them and wooing them, don't stop being godly. Keep living obediently, because when you fall into idolatry, you will eventually go in the hands of your enemy and live in captivity. There are different kinds of captivity. And we are watching it happen, not from an attacking army outwardly, but from an invisible army inwardly. A society more addicted than ever, more lonely than ever. Broken hearts, broken lives, broken homes. You see, God hates sin because he loves you so deeply. That's why God hates sin. And that is why he warns you, because it's gonna take you into slavery and captivity. And Jesus said, I've come to set you free. 
If the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Now I want to do a quick flyover. If you're a mommy, daddy, grandma, grandpa, you got little ones at home, I want to give you kind of a high flyover, a strategy, knowing ahead of time that the world is battling for your children, the heart and mind of your little ones. Daniel went into captivity because the walls had fallen. And you understand, there are walls around every home. Every home is a castle. And it's our job as parents to guard our children from the spirit of Babylon that's coming for them. I want to give you a very quick flyover, just some things to think about. Number one is this, you need to pray. You need to pray for your children. Because it is everywhere from education to pop culture, media, entertainment. Sometimes it's subtle indoctrination. It's becoming more defiant, more in your face, just open, frankly. I mean, when my kids were little, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, Bernstein Bears. Remember a little Bernstein Bear book we would read? It was a, they were going on a nature walk. You turn the page and what it says, here it is. Nature is you. Nature is me. Nature is all that is or was or will ever be. Just a subtle indoctrination on a false theology of naturalism. Do you understand they ripped that right from Revelation chapter 1? Jesus said, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, all that was or is or will ever be. Bernstein Bears took that straight from the Bible and it's Babylonian. Here's these little minds going, oh, all there is is nature. There's no God. Now, that's just one little example I have from you know, years ago. There are other examples. I, I don't know the kitty culture today. You know, back in my day, it was Barney. I'm glad it's not Barney anymore. Wow. Yeah. I don't know what it is today. It was Barney back in my kid's day. But you watch the indoctrination of our children. We need to pray. I mean, pray every day. Daniel 1 and verse 8 puts it this way, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies or with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, we don't know a lot about Daniel's parents. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about them, but I will promise you, Daniel may be 14 years of age right now. He didn't get that kind of heart all by himself. He purposed in his heart ahead of time, 800 miles through the desert, three months traveling to Babylon. He decided ahead of time what he was going to do. He didn't get there by himself. He had a mommy and daddy, I guarantee, that prepared him. They would have known for weeks the Babylonians are coming. They would have known for weeks the Babylonian army has our city surrounded. They would have had time to prepare Daniel. They would have had one conversation after another. Daniel, listen, honey, the walls of our city are going to fall. And one of two things are going to happen. Probably your mom and dad are going to be killed right in front of your eyes by a Babylonian sword. And they're going to carry you off into Babylon against your will. And if we don't die, they're going to rip you from our arms. And we want to prepare you ahead of time for what you're going to encounter. I want you to notice he purposed in his heart. It's all about the heart. Most of the time as parents or educators, we focus on the head. 
That's part of the problem. Historically in church life, like my wife went through confirmation. She memorized 200 Bible verses. You know, we went through Awana, and it's memorized 200 Bible verses. And we think if we force feed the Bible and cram it down their throat, they're going to be godly. No, it's all about the head. That's just academic. The focus has to be the heart. Psalm 119.105, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. One of the verses we talked about when my kids were growing up over and over again, Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart with all diligence for out of it flow the issues of life. Meaning the life you live above the surface is merely a reflection of your heart's condition below the surface. Guys, guard your heart. It's about shepherding and shaping that little one's heart. Whoever owns the hearts and minds of the children owns the future. And number two is this, you need a plan. You don't just pray, you also gotta have a plan. I've said for many years, good parents give their kids lots of attention. Godly parents give their kids lots of intention. You need to be intentional, you need to have a strategy, you need to think through very strategically having a plan to raise them from infancy to maturity so they can live a life that is godly in this Babylonian society. Now, about three years ago, I did a series called Castles. It's still on our website. It was a family series, a parenting series. We're actually taking this series and making it a curriculum. A year from now, we're going to be launching Full Throttle, a family ministry. The church historically has done this wrong. Go ahead. You can clap. I'm excited about it, too. I'm so excited about it. I really am. Historically, what do churches do? We minister to kids. That was the wrong model all along. We need to minister to the parents, so we minister through the parents to the kids. We get your kids for an hour and 15 minutes a week. That's it. Babylon gets them all week long. You get them more than we do. Your, your youth pastors, your, your kid pastors, we can access their heads, but you can access their hearts. And so we're going to disciple parents, not just their children, with a strategy how to do this. We're going to give you some tools. And I want you to think in terms specifically about a plan from protection to preparation. So this is part of what I shared. It's in your handout. But in the early years, you build the walls high. Every home has got walls. Jerusalem had walls. The walls were fallen. Walls in the ancient days were to keep an enemy on the outside from getting inside. Guess what? You need to build walls as a parent. In the early years, walls of protection. But you're the gatekeeper. You gotta build some gates into those walls because your tendency in fear-based parenting is just keep them behind the walls and you can keep them safe, but that will not make them strong. And so you move gradually, strategically from the age of protection to the age of preparation where around 9, 10, 11 years of age you start opening up the gates, gradually exposing them to this Babylonian society where they have to begin exercising their spiritual muscles against the external wicked forces of this world. That's how you make your child strong and not just keep them safe. But I want you to see, in the early days especially, you're the gatekeeper and you're the wall builder, you have high control. In the early days, your children has little control. You gradually give away control. So by the time they graduate, you've given them all control. You can trust them now to make those decisions purposing in their heart. Guys, I'm telling you, some of us have not built the walls. We've only built gates. 
Let's be honest with you. I, I just got an email from a, a lady in our church, a mom whose third grade son was exposed to pornography. It's happening at younger and younger and younger ages. A sexualized culture. We are incubating a generation of sexual addicts, prisoners, and predators. On the one hand, we denounce sexual assault, hashtag me too. The hypocrisy is we incubate sexual predators. We're doing this to ourselves. As parents, it is imperative. I'll be honest, my kids thought I was a bad dad because everybody else had a cell phone and they didn't. Bad dad. You just need to know when you give your child a cell phone, you have thrown the gates wide open. You don't know what they're going to be exposed to. And those early years are the most important years. Listen, what a child learns the earliest will go the deepest and they'll believe the longest. Which is why Babylon wants your child at younger and younger ages. Now, I'm not telling you about educational choices. I think you can be done with any educational choice. Daniel went to a public school. All right, but listen very carefully. Whether or not you choose to homeschool, public school, Christian school, there better be some home education going on. All right, that, that's the point. You need to protect them in the early years. Protect them from those shaping influences, those outside influences, because that's where their heart is being shaped. You can go to my old house, haven't lived there for years, but in the driveway you will find three little sets of handprints still there. That concrete today, you can push on it, press on it all you want. It's not going to change. Well, guess what? That's the nature of the human heart. Pretty much by the time they're 10, their hearts have been shaped, their worldview, their values. Now, you need to prepare them. You need to start opening up the gates. How you do that takes wisdom. It takes prayer. But you can't just keep them safe. You need a plan to make them strong. Teach them to take what you say seriously. Because if they don't learn to take what you say seriously, they will never learn to take what God says seriously. They will never learn there is a higher authority. I'm not in charge. God is in charge. Make them obey. If they don't learn to obey you as mom and dad, they will never learn to obey God too. And it won't end well for them. So they're learning in those early days about authority. I need to submit to authority. Right now, mom and dad are my authority. Ultimately, God is my authority. There's something in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is book of wisdom, just practical wisdom. Solomon wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So much practical wisdom on marriage and relationships and family and parenting. Did you know in the book of Proverbs there's like four or five verses on something called spanking? Yeah, how dare, I, 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 it, it's, it's taboo in society, I, I know what it is. Listen, spanking is not the same as beating. If you beat your children, it's criminal, it is sinful, and you need to go to jail. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something different. Spanking is not injuring your children, but I will promise you God has purposely put pain receptors in the gluteus maximus because when you stimulate the gluteus maximus, they will get a brand new revelation in the cerebral cortex. It works, and by the way, did you know God spanks his children? Just read Hebrews chapter 12. He does. Somebody says, oh, I could never ever spank little Timmy. We know. 
we all know. Who's training who here? That's the real question. Teach them to live selflessly. No, we live in a selfish, selfie society where it's all about me, self-idolatry. And we emphasize for far too long something called self-esteem. Guess what? That's Babylon. It's not Bible. Philippians 2.3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Teach them to esteem others, not esteem self, because self-esteem is not the same as self-confidence. If you give them self-esteem, they will actually lack self-confidence. It's been proven. I'm telling you, in my home, I didn't get a lot of self-esteem growing up. In my day, it was called being too big for your britches. And if I got too big for my britches, I can promise my mom was going to take my britches to my ankles. And I was going to get a brand new revelation, the cerebral cortex, as she was about to stimulate the gluteus maximus. Teach your child who they are and who God is. Give them the gospel. Jesus died for their sin, rose again so they can be forgiven of their sin, born again to become his child. See, as a child of God, they have an identity because they know whose they are. And because they know whose they are, they never forget who they are. That happens in the early days. Number three, you need to practice the truth. I'm sorry, guys, I'm moving really fast. We had like a gazillion baptisms today. Church is going late. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. This is maybe the most important part. I don't have time to talk about it. Don't just tell them what is true. Live what is true. Practice the truth. Secularism, postmodernism, the way a postmodern mind thinks is this. If something works, it must be true. If it doesn't work, it must not be true. See, your kids are watching you. What they're asking is not, is Christianity true? What they're asking, it doesn't work. And if they can look at your life and see that Jesus works, then that must be true. In some cases, children have walked away from the faith, not because it wasn't true, but because they decided it must not work. If you want your children to live the truth, you gotta live the truth. Because you can fool a fool, but you can't kid a kid. They live with you. They know what you believe. Facts are taught, but faith is caught. See, so you teach what you know, but you'll reproduce what you are. The fourth thing is this, you need to pray. You say, Phil, that was number one. Yeah, it's number four too. That's how important it is, because we're not raising robots, we're raising human beings. And let me just say to some of the parents here with adult children, with prodigals, they walked away from the faith and you're full of guilt and what could I have done different and what did I do wrong? I want to remind you of something. Even God, who is a perfect father, has prodigal sons and daughters. Give yourself a break. Walk in grace, not guilt. Because even if you could have done everything right, it's still not a guarantee that it couldn't turn out wrong. That's why we need to pray. Let's do it right now. Would you stand with me? Let's pray for our little ones. Jesus, I'm praying together as the body of Christ at Abundant Life. We form a wall. The walls around our children, around our families, 
And we pray for these little ones, these grandbabies, these children, that God, they would grow up to know and love you, to live lives that are godly in this Babylonian society that has abandoned a higher authority, time of moral anarchy. God, I pray for each of these moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, that you would give them profound wisdom in their every decision for their children, that God, you'd give them wisdom in every conversation. That you, Lord, you would bless them with a double portion of your spirit as they raise their children to know and love you in the face of a Babylonian indoctrination that's everywhere we turn. I thank you, Jesus, for your grace upon all of our lives. Fill us, God, with your spirit in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, give him the glory, would you? Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure and subscribe and share with a friend. We hope today's message inspired and challenged you. Let's go be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. For more information about Abundant Life, visit livingproof.co or follow us on social media at Abundant Life LS.